Well, if you have a Bible or copy of God's Word there, there should be one there in the uh, pew in front of you. Uh, Or if you'd like to access it on your phone, however you like to get it in front of you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to look at chapter 17 this morning as we continue on in our long study through this gospel account. I hope and pray that it has been rich and encouraging for you. I know it has been for me. I have enjoyed just kind of doing a deep dive in this gospel account. Again, if you have no idea where John is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents or kind of go to the middle of your Bible and start heading to the right. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, and then look for the big number 17. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. We're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 15 this morning. Um, And again, the way the Bible works, the Old Testament says someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts that we're in this morning say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. Who is that someone? our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're looking at his life and ministry and reading his very words this morning. So as you're opening up to John chapter 15, or John 17 this morning, verses 1 through 5, back in 2008, Rebecca and I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, while I was a full-time seminary student. I was also an intern at a church and a student worker in the campus bookstore, and Rebecca was a full-time worker from home. We had as much as we could possibly handle on our plates while we were there in seminary. I was taking a full load of classes, and we also, because we obviously weren't overwhelmed enough in that moment, were expecting our first child. And we went and we bought all the stuff, and we read all the books, and we went to the classes. This was all new to us, and we were excited, but as you can imagine, also anxious and slightly terrified all kind of rolled into one while also having all of this other stuff going on. And the the anticipation of, uh, you know, as as the months progressed, a new anxiety entered the picture, which is, okay, so when will it happen? When will the birth actually happen? And, you know, you kind of have a rough idea, but you know, there's all, you're just kind of always living in this moment of like, is it time? Is, is it time now? And the, the anticipation of giving birth is, as the, as the months progress, there's just this like anticipation of when will the time come? And the plans get made, the bag gets packed, you know, the bag that you grab next to the door and run out. You've made your contingency plans that like what happens if it happens in the middle of the day versus the middle of the night. Usually in our case, it was the middle of the night. And, you know, you've rehearsed the drive to the hospital, but then you just wait. And you can imagine if you've ever kind of been through the process, like every Braxton Hicks contraction, every time something doesn't feel right, you wonder, is it time? Is, is, is it finally time? You may have even experienced a similar situation in something maybe other, waiting, other than waiting for a child, and it's left you wondering, like, is it time? You know, you have all this anticipation and you're just kind of waiting for kind of it to kick in. And you go, you feel that feeling of anticipation that's there. Is it time? Is it time? Is it time? Now, for the past 17 chapters of John, we've seen a variation of a couplet of two Greek words. There are two words, hupo and erkomai, used six times up until this point, And it's translated, not yet come. So you've heard, my hour has not yet come, or Jesus had not yet come to them. It's those two Greek words, hupo and erkomai, in various translations, but it's usually just, this has not yet come. 
Two of them came in the context of a meal. You might remember the wedding feast at Cana and also the Feast of Booths where we hear Jesus said, my time has not yet come, or John narrates, his time had not yet come. And remember, as we're looking at chapter 17, it's, it's hard to imagine, we're still in the upper room discourse. We're, we're still there. We've been there for several chapters, multiple weeks, and we're still in the context of this upper room discourse with Jesus and his disciples. It basically spans chapter 13 to 17. In John chapter 13, verse 1, how this begins, we read, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, we see this being mentioned in the context of a feast day. Now, the feast of the Passover is here. Jesus knew that his time had come, but yet he still got some teaching with his disciples to do. And we're right on the verge of, we're in the shadow of the cross right now in our chapter. And we've seen throughout this narrative, others try to arrest or kill Jesus. But again, we're reminded his time had not yet come. And he has told his disciples that he would be going away from them, but not yet. And last week, Jesus said, the hour is coming twice. John has been building a sense of anticipation in his gospel account. I mean, imagine reading this for the very first time. And the whole time you're reading, is it time yet? I've heard my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. You're like, is it, is it time yet? Have we gotten there? After addressing his disciples for four chapters, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, now Jesus addresses his father in the longest prayer in the New Testament, in John chapter 17. Here's what Kent Hughes said about this chapter. So John 17 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and certainly one of the most treasured. Some refer to it as the, quote, holy of holies of sacred scripture, end quote. The revelation of the inner sanctum of Christ's heart as he bared his soul in a final public prayer to the Father before he stepped out into the night and onto the cross. Here's what Philip Melanchthon said. He said, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime, than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. Pretty heavy words there. Pretty high praise for John chapter 17. Would you like to know what they were going on and on about? I hope so. Let's dive in. John chapter 17. We're just going to start the first five verses. With that in our mind, let's go to the the scripture. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that and I hope you are. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we consider this text. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for passages like this where we get a glimpse into uh, the heart of Jesus. And we pray that you would take these words and apply them to our lives. Help us to, Father, lean into them and to receive them by faith. Father, please convict us, lead us, guide us, and direct us, O Father, but hide us behind the cross. And we pray these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
Okay, so as we look at John 17 and we look at the high priestly prayer, this prayer is known as that, the high priestly prayer. You might have that written as like the subhead above the chapter. And it is so theologically dense that we're going to spend three Sundays on it. So this Sunday, Sunday week, and then the Sunday after that, focusing on it. Now, Thomas Manton actually spent 45 sermons on this particular chapter. So we're going to spend three. You're welcome. Okay, we're only going to do three. I'm not going to do 45, okay? Now, there are three major sections to this prayer. It breaks down nicely into three sections. You have verses 1 through 5 that we're going to consider this morning. Verses 6 through 19 is kind of the next section. And then 20 to 26 is the third section. And that pattern is not arbitrary. I actually was reading about this this week and this, hearing this described and was like, oh, I've never seen this before. And it follows a very important pattern that we actually see in Leviticus 16, a pattern that governed the ministry of the high priest on the annual day of atonement, hence it being referred to as the high priestly prayer. Now, under the old covenant in the temple system, remember we talked about this for a long time in our long study of Hebrews, sacrifices were offered daily by a team of priests, but once a year on the day of atonement, known as Yom Kippur, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, which is regarded as the very throne room of God on earth. And in it was the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would go in and present the annual sacrifice for the sins of the people before the throne of God. He would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, which is like the lid of the Ark that had the, the cherubim facing. And so he would go in and, and sprinkle the blood there. And then he would actually pray and intercede for the people that God would accept their sacrifice. Now, the preparation for that intercessory work on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, was very carefully structured. The high priest would cleanse himself with ritual washing. Then he would engage all in an all-night vigil, where he would stay up and pray with a small group of priests appointed to help him stay awake, and he prayed. Your mind already might be going ahead to... Jesus asking the disciples, will you not stay awake? I mean, all of this uh, is very on purpose. And the high priest's intercession in and of itself had three major parts. He would pray for himself and his ministry that he was about to do. He would then make intercession for his fellow priests and those serving alongside him. And then finally, he would make intercession for all the people of God. And so as we consider this first part of Christ's prayer we're going to ask the question, what do we find him praying for? Verse 1 gives us the big picture where it says, Glorify your Son that the, that the Son may glorify you. And so we're going to ask the question, okay, well, how? How does that glory happen? How does the, the glory of the Son that then glorifies the Father, how does that kick in? We're going to see two ways, and these are our two main points this morning. Number one, we're going to see glory on the cross. And number two, we're going to see glory in heaven. Glory on the cross, glory in heaven. Those are going to be our two main points as we consider what Jesus is praying for here as he prays for himself and the ministry and the work that he's about to do following that breakdown of kind of the Levitical priests. And so let's look at glory on the cross. This is basically verses 1 through 4. This is going to be the longest point. When we get to point 2, it's going to be really short. So point 1 is going to be our longest. So let's look at verse 1. As Jesus finishes the upper room discourse by telling his disciples to take heart, right in the previous verse, because he has overcome the world that will want to destroy them, he now begins his prayer. He goes and he is interceding. 
And he begins, Father, the hour has come. The stage is finally set. The scripture is about to be fulfilled. And we talked a few weeks ago about how our redemption is gloriously Trinitarian in its design, accomplishment, and even its application. All of it was by grace before we were ever born. We said that the best thing that will ever happen to you in your Christian life has already happened to you on the cross. And so you think about how our redemption is gloriously Trinitarian. The Father designed and mandated the work of redemption. He sent His Son into the world to accomplish the task of redemption by living the righteous life that we could never do on our own and then satisfying the righteous justice of God by dying in our place as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now we see the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the task of the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son to apply the work of Christ to our lives. It's gloriously Trinitarian when you think about it. Here's what Sproul said about what's going on here in the text. He said, The hour was no longer remote. It was looming right in front of him. The moment planned by the Trinity from all eternity was at hand. We have arrived on the doorstep of the cross. Now, did you notice the five variations of the word glory used in today's passage? There's five verses, and you see like glory or glorify. There's, there's five variations of that used uh, in your translation. I'm in the ESV. You might have something different. But I want you to notice that the manger, the cross, and the crown, it's all for the glory of our triune God. Everything that has happened, everything that's about to happen, it's all for the glory of our triune God. And you think about this hour that we've arrived at. This is the hour promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. It's finally arrived. The heel of Christ was about to be crushed, but under that crushed heel would be the crushed head of the serpent. We've said a page and a half in the Bible. That's the first time the gospel's mentioned. There's this redeemer who's going to come. He is going to crush the head of the serpent but not before in, in, taking or in, in, in taking upon himself a wound. And we see that this hour has arrived. Genesis 3.15, we are knocking on the doorstep of it right there. It's finally about to come all the way to fruition. Jesus had already glorified the Father by his perfect life of obedience to the law, but he was about to glorify his Father by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was the Son's desire to glorify the Father, and it was the desire of the Father to glorify the Son. You see this throughout this passage and throughout this high priestly prayer. There's glory that's being passed around. I want to glorify you, O Father, and it's the Father's will to glorify the Son and the the Holy Spirit. There's just glory going around. There's a long quote by Kent Hughes talking about what's going on here. He said, The cross displayed God the Father because, as, as chapter 1, verse 18 says, Jesus is the explanation or the exegesis of God. What do we learn from the cross? We see the holiness of God and the cross is nowhere else. We see His love of holiness and His hatred of sin and His refusal to compromise with it. We also see His love of justice in His condemnation of sin even exercising his wrath upon his son who bore our sins. Finally, we see God's love for us and the vast cost he paid for our redemption. If Jesus had stopped short of the cross, that would have proved that there is a degree of love to which God is not prepared to go for us. The cross proves there is no limit to God's love. End quote. Dwell on that for a moment. 
what Jesus was prepared to do fully for a bunch of sinful people like you and me. Just take our breath away. Now, verse 2, as we carry on, verse 2 helps us understand who is included in this amazing work of redemption and grace. Who is the us that is in the quote that we just heard? Kent Hughes has said it was for us and it was for us. Who's the us? Look at verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. A couple other verses from John 6 that we've covered. John 6, 37 to 39. Starts off, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Just a few verses later, John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws. Remember the Greek, there's drags. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Even Paul talks about us in our spiritual state, in rebellion and in our sin, prior to conversion. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person, so he's talking about the person in their sin. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. What we see here and what we will continue to see throughout this prayer of Christ is the glorious doctrine of particular redemption and sovereign election. It is all in this prayer. And I used to run from it because I didn't like it until I saw it for the first time as the absolute picture of grace. Then I ran to it because it was like a life raft for my heart. And it gave me hope. Why? Because I finally came to grips with the fact that I couldn't save myself. But boy, did I try. Boy, did I try. I tried to be a good little boy. I tried to be perfect. I tried to do it just right. And I never could thread the needle. And I was always frustrated by that. Until I realized, that's the whole point. You can't do it. I couldn't save myself. I tried it left me worn out. It left me disillusioned. It left me asking the question, will I ever be good enough? Until I understood this. And then I was like, this makes all the sense in the world. What it means is, a not little good boy like me has a savior. And I was finally able to grasp that for the first time. We do not need to hide these doctrines away in the back closet. We need to put them on the front porch and proclaim them and preach them as the very heartbeat of the gospel and as humanity's only hope. It is the only way that the gospel message shines in all of its fullness. We must preach Christ and Him crucified. We have to put these doctrines on the front porch. We do not hide these doctrines away. God is not ashamed of Romans 8 and 9. He is not ashamed of Ephesians 1 and 2. He is not ashamed of what we're going to read about here in the high priestly prayer in John 17 that came directly from the lips of our Savior. And when you see them as the picture of grace, it will change the way you see Christianity in the gospel. Just like it did for me. Are you tired and worn out from trying to be a good little boy and a good little girl and do it right? I got some good news for you. Hang in there. 
This is good stuff. I didn't come up with any of it. This is why we preach this gospel message in its fullness and we don't blink when we do it. Because our community doesn't need more man-centered, moralistic, dead religion. It needs a living, Christ-centered gospel message of grace for those who by the power of the Spirit see their sin, admit their need for a Savior, and turn to Christ in repentance and faith. We do not need more man-centered religion. We need Jesus. We need the gospel in all of its fullness. Even if it means and even if it tells us stuff we don't like. The Bible's full of stuff we don't like. That's okay. We submit to it. We need a renewed view of a holy God and an honest view of humanity, which is we are dead in our sin and we are rebellious. I am, you are, when given the moment's notice, we'll shake our fist at God. I don't want you to tell me what to do. How dare you? We need that renewed view of God that he's holy, 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 and we are what? Not, not, not. And when we recognize that, what is the result? It's like the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's all I got. Remember, we said before, the only thing you bring to the salvation equation is the sin that made it necessary. That's all you bring. That's it, period, full stop. There's no extra. There's no footnote. That's it. That's all you bring. What could you, when you think about this, what could you possibly add to what Christ has already accomplished on the cross? What could you possibly bring in your hands that's going to add to the beauty of that transaction that happened at the cross? There's nothing you can bring. Where were you when he hung between heaven and earth to purchase your redemption? You weren't even a glimmer in your mama's eye, but your name was written in the Lamb's book of life, and he hung between heaven and earth for you. What could you possibly add to that? And you think, why, oh Lord, would you be so kind? just takes our breath away when you think about it. We must be very careful not to hold back any glory for ourselves that Christ alone merited for his work on the cross. The Trinity deserves every ounce of the glory, not us. Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You get all the glory. We don't get to keep any of it for ourselves. Boy, we try though, don't we? We say, oh, but I did this part. No, you didn't. We give it all to Jesus. We give it all to the Lord. What this doctrine actually teaches is that an actual transaction took place on the cross and that Christ's death actually accomplished something in real space and time. And here's what happened. Before the foundation of the world and for his own glory, as decreed by his sovereign will, a sovereign, holy, almighty God chose to save a definite or particular group of people from a well-deserved hell that they wanted to go to and commit to do whatever it took to fully rescue and redeem each and every last helpless one of them without exception. I will get every one of them. There is not a sheep in the flock that, will, that Satan will ever be able to snatch out of my hand. I'm going to do it. I'm going to rescue every one of them. I know who they are, and I'm going to get every one of them. And we say, thank you, Lord. That's our hope. His death fully accomplished and actually secured salvation for the elect. And I know we hear that E word and we run, but it is all throughout the Bible. 
He actually secured redemption for his people because he loves them. And if you are a Christian today, it is only because a loving God chose to set his love upon you before the foundation of the world and send his perfect, sinless son into the world to rescue you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That shouldn't make us go, how dare you, God? It should make us tear up and say, Jesus, why me? Why would you ever be so kind? Here's what John Murray said. Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem to himself a people. Christ did not come to make God reconcilable. He reconciled us to God by his own blood. Jesus just didn't crack the door and say, you do the rest. Because he knew that we were dead on the floor and we wouldn't do it. Jesus actually secured redemption for his people. It actually happened. When he said, it is finished, he meant it. It's done. And we say, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Think about this. Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, willingly volunteered to shed his precious blood and to sacrifice his perfect life to drag a bunch of hell-bound rebels like us back from the grave. None of us deserved it, but he loved us anyway. While we were unlovely, at just the right time, Christ died for us. But you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world and the power of the prince of the air. And you were throwing yourself off a cliff, Ephesians 2. But God, but God, not you, but God, being rich in mercy, even with the great love of which he loved us, he reconciled us and he saved us. We we're chucking ourselves off the cliff and he said, not today. Not today. It's amazing. It's amazing when you think about it. None of us deserved it. Often the biggest barrier to us standing in awe of Jesus is our own pride. Because we stand in awe of ourselves. Because we're incapable of admitting our true need for a Savior. And so we come to God with our checklists and our decisions and our moral record. When what we need to do is come to Him with a bowed head. You want a picture of this? Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector... Standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The difference could not be any clearer, and it is straight out of the mouth of Christ in that parable. We don't come to God and say, look at what I've done. We come to him with a bowed head and say, Lord... Please have mercy on me, a sinner. Not a drop of that precious blood was spilled in vain. Everyone whom the Father chose for salvation will be saved through the atoning work of Christ on their behalf. He is still at work right now, calling his sheep to himself. He's doing that right now. You might think of a family member or a friend or a neighbor we think the very fact that we're here shows us that God is not finished with his work of redemption. And as you sit here this morning, the question is, is he calling you right now? 
Verse 2 tells us that Jesus has been given all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all that the Father has given to him. The very fact that we're still sitting here today shows that that work is ongoing. And so as a minister in the gospel, I am laying before you that today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel as you respond in faith this very moment and receive the undeserved gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will, will be saved. Look at verse 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And you're thinking, God, Dave, you're going real heavy on this. I'm not pressing this home because I hate you or because I think I'm better than you. Far from it. I'm pressing this home because I love you. And I want you to love Jesus. I know for a fact that I'm worse than you. I know for a fact. I'm just more sneaky. I know for a fact that I'm worse than you. But Jesus has been kind and gracious to a sinful wretch just like me, as he has been with y'all. His grace is real. His forgiveness is real. Hope is real. The gospel is true. And so what do we call you to do? Look to Christ and the work of redemption that was actually accomplished in real space and time. Look to Christ. Now verse 4, there's a Greek aorist active participle that's used that's tricky to translate into English. If you're kind of an, like an English nerd, this is going to be for you. The verb translated having accomplished there in verse 4 is, is like the prophetic tense. We've talked about this before. The work in view is so close that it is talked about as if it's already happened in the past. That's the voice that's being used here. It's kind of tricky to go from Greek into English, but that's kind of the feeling. This is kind of a prophetic future. Like it's so close that it's as if it already happened. Christ is so close to the cross that he can almost hear the cry of victory from the cross. It is finished. And he is resolute and he is prepared to go all the way to the cross and to the tomb for a bunch of sinful people like us. He was prepared to go all the way. Now, what will this bring for Christ? This is our second and very quick point. Not just glory on the cross, but glory in heaven. Verse 5, in this closing verse of this first section of the high priestly prayer, Jesus reaffirms his deity and co-eternal status with the Father. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Basically, he is saying, I am ready to return home to the glory of heaven. Sinclair Ferguson mentioned a Welsh word that best describes this feeling. It's hyreath, which is a deep longing for a person or thing which is absent or lost, yearning nostalgia. The nearest English analog for this would be homesickness, a, like a deep longing. If you're a Christian, have you ever felt this way while singing some of the great hymns? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand, we say, I am bound for the promised land. We sing Amazing Grace when we've been there 10,000 years. Think about songs or hymns like For All the Saints or Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Land me safe on Canaan's side. The sands of time are sinking. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. 
Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer, as we think about our heavenly home. Think about how we love to sing songs like, We will feast in the house of Zion. Just makes us homesick. Christians have been singing homesick songs for centuries, longing for an end to their pilgrim days to be back home with the Lord. And I'm not saying this to toy with your emotions. I promise I'm not. I'm saying this to simply remind you that this is a true and real longing for those who are in Christ because we are strangers and exiles in a strange land. As Christ longed to be back home again with the Father, we too share that heavenly longing deep in our souls. And it's one of the most human things that we can do this side of heaven, which is long for heaven. It's one of the, one of the most human things we can do, as we are made in the image of God. And we, as we've been united to Christ, our, we look to that promised land and we sing, I am bound for the promised land. We're like, oh, yes, please take me home. I'm ready. I'm ready for that. Here's what John Bunyan said in his preface to the Pilgrim's Progress. He said, I seek a place that can never be destroyed, one that is pure and that fadeth not away and is laid up in heaven and safe there to be given at the time appointed to them that seek it with all their heart. Read it so, if you will, in my book. It's a great preface. The question is, is that your hope today? Is that your hope? Do you hope in Christ, or are you hoping in yourself? Are you hoping in Christ and Christ alone, or are you still clinging to your religious record? Are you still clinging to your moral perfection? Or are you clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone? Are you standing in awe of all that Christ has done to rescue and redeem you before the foundation of the world? Have you taken time to just stand in awe of the fact that before anything was created, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life and has been kept there? It's amazing when you think about it. Is that your hope? If so, keep looking to Christ and know that your name is written in the only book that counts, and that is the Lamb's Book of Life that was written before the foundation of the world and had your name on it. It's amazing. And if not, if that's not your hope, here is my gentle encouragement to you. Read about it, if you will, in God's book. Because this could be your hope. Do we long for heaven? Do we stand in awe of all that God has done? Are we okay, maybe for the first time, to just admit that I probably need to take myself out of the equation because what I need to do is I need to focus all of my glory upon the Lord because it is to Him and Him alone. Just like we're going to close in a minute with a doxology, a song of praise to ourselves, no. A song of praise to God and all that He has done to rescue a bunch of broken, messed up, sinful, rebellious people like you and me and bring them and draw them from spiritual death into spiritual life. It is an absolute picture of mercy. And it's our only hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this high priestly prayer that you've laid in front of us, O Lord, as we're reminded of your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we just stand in awe of the fact that you would ever, ever, ever choose to show your grace to wretches like us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent of our own self-righteousness, that you would help us, Lord, to repent and return to you. Lord, with a sense of awe and wonder, as the hymn asks us, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise our Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Mount Sinai's flame. He has brought us 
near to God. He has washed us with his blood. Lord, may we just stand in awe of that, especially as we read your prayer, preserved for us in the scripture, knowing full well that you were fully committed to do whatever it took to rescue and redeem your people. And to that we say, why me? But thank you, Jesus. That's our prayer. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.